Hi, this is Brent Skousen. I'm the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you are about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. Originally, these lectures weren't intended to be released publicly, so they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come Follow Me curriculum from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, this lecture covers the three lessons from May 16th through May 29th, including a brief review of the book of Numbers and then a discussion on the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua. For those interested in the textbook Brother Skousen and the students are using, it's published as The Third Thousand Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen and is available online at skousen2000.com. And new this year is a special audio version of The Third Thousand Years, found at audible.com. During this lecture today, Dr. Skousen will briefly turn away from the microphone to refer to some maps. The volume fades somewhat, but then quickly resumes when he returns to the microphone. The maps he is referring to can be found in the textbook on pages 348 and 352. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Lecture 23. I noticed uh, some of my exams also have a question about the priesthood. In order to reach the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom, are you required to be a high priest? Could you be a 70? Uh, could you be a priest? You would have to be at least, you'd have to be an elder. Does a 70 have any more priesthood than an elder? Does an apostle? That's right. Does the president of the church? What does he have the rest of us don't have? That's great. That's good. Right on. Right on. Okay. Now, both of you, I'm sure, will remember the two, the two and the only two people who were over 20 years of age who came up out of Egypt with the children of Israel and were entitled to go into the Promised Land. Caleb, who was a, who was Jewish, and Joshua, who was. Josephite of the of Ephraim. Okay, I want to make sure of that. Can you distinguish between a burnt offering and a peace offering? Okay, pretty good. What was characteristic of a burnt offering? It got burnt. That's right. Uh, what's characteristic of a peace offering? Did it all get burned to begin with? No. Kidneys and the fat, and uh, it was to create a symbolic peace between three people who the Lord his servants the priesthood and the individual making the sacrifice so you, you sacrificed the fat and the kidneys and so forth and you took part of the shoulder and waved it toward the temple saying Heavenly Father I'm giving this to the priesthood and their family so they'll be taken care of meanwhile we'll take the rest of the of the carcass which is now kosher and go home and enjoy it Okay. What uh, two levels of priesthood were included in the Levitical order? In the Levitical order, deacons and teachers. And then, uh, in order to be a priest, of from whom did you have to descend in those days? How old did you have to be to be ordained to the Levitical priesthood, which would be the office of a deacon? It changed. What did it begin with? Try for 30. Then it came down to 25, and then it came down to 20, now it's down to 12. It just shows you that there's no, there's nothing sacred about the, the period. Now, 
Uh, when I was uh, <clears throat> ordained an elder, you could have been ordained at 13. I was ordained at 17, sent on my mission immediately. You now can be ordained at 18. A year ago, you couldn't. So uh, the ordination of the priesthood depends upon the needs of the Lord and his kingdom, the preparation of the people. Because in ancient times, if you were ordained a deacon at 30, you know why the Melchizedek priesthood were called elders. And they believe me, they were. Especially if you think of a man like Mahalalel, 496 years and eight days. So, um, and uh, you take somebody like Jared, 200 years. But then his son Enoch, 25 years. And then you take Noah, 10 years. And John the Baptist, eight days. Isn't that interesting? It's great that you know all of that, you see? That's just going to help you all of your life. You know, I, my generation didn't learn the scriptures. And uh, I listened to a member of our former stake presidency the other day teaching a class. And I, as I sat there listening to him, I thought what a great disservice was rendered to our generation. Uh, I, I noticed him starting to make errors. And he was just going along. And he was just making errors. There were little there were details, but they were errors. He was talking about the Old Testament and <clears throat> Pearl of Great Price. And, and nobody was uh, correcting him. They all belonged to that same generation in that class. And um, so I thought, I'll just tabulate that just to see what's happened. He got up to 15 errors in one 40-minute talk. And he's a good man, and he's as well-informed as most of my generation were on the scriptures. For example, he was talking about Terah and Abraham. And he said, of course, Terah claimed the priesthood through Ham. Who claimed the priesthood through Ham? Yeah, the Egyptians. Egyptians. Terah was Semitic. He claimed it through Shem. Well, there were, there were those kind of errors, just, just sprinkled all the way through. And I, I was talking to um, one of the College of Religion professors just a little while ago before lunch. He said, isn't this a thrill to see what's happening to this generation as far as scriptures and gospel doctrine is concerned? And I said, it really is. He said, you, notice, you remember how we had to sweat it out and get it by ourselves? I said, yes, that's just about what we had to do. And he said, here they're getting it. Here they are, only 21, 22, and 23. Most of them know more doctrine than, uh, well, they know almost as much doctrine as the general authorities. He said, this is a great generation. And I've so appreciated having you with me in this class. And some of you I've had in other classes. And I appreciate your keeping up with me and trying to make this part of your thinking and part of your life so that uh, it's part of your culture now. It's part of your, your pattern you understand Moses. You, you empathize with uh, these people of the past who went through so much. We're going to meet them someday. They'll, be, they'll mean something to you now. When you walk up to Joshua, someone says, this is Joshua. Some people are going to be saying, let's see, uh, 350 B.C. When was Joshua? What was Joshua? Was he before the flood? <laughs> That's really what will happen. That's really what will happen. But he'll be a person to you. You know that he fits in about 14 to 1500 B.C., you know that he's of our tribe. Most of us are of his tribe. And uh, you know that uh, he was the right-hand man of Moses. And uh, he was up on that mountain 34 days. You want to kind of ask him, what did you do during all those 34 days? Did you bring along any books to read? Or did you have any blanks to fill in or anything? To <clears throat> do any homework while you're up there? Pass away the time? Well, isn't this 40th year of Moses amazing? 
in this last year of his, the 40th year of his ministry, so he's 120 years old, this is the last year of his life, and he doesn't know it right till the end. Because the first thing he did in that year was to lose whom? His, his sister Miriam. She was about, we estimate, around eight years older than he, and, and um, Aaron was how much older than Moses? Three years older. And he, that had barely taken place. He'd barely lost his sister, who was a prophetess, and except for that one little moment when she got a little egotistical and wanted to take over the whole kingdom. Uh, otherwise, she was rather humble and so forth, and that leprosy really impressed her. So we had no more problems of that. And other than that, she was a great leader among the women of Israel. She was the one that led out the great song of, of exaltation after the Egyptians were killed. It's recorded in a whole chapter of the Bible. Anyway, she passed away, and the next thing we know, Aaron is told that he's going to go up on a mountain and not come back down. And that's quite a traumatic experience. It's one thing to have a heart attack, and, and you're laid out, you know, and people say, well, that, that used to be Brother Skousen, and he's gone now. He's meeting his friends and his reward or consequences, whatever they are. And uh, so all that you have there is the mortal uh, frame, it's one thing to, to say goodbye to the mortal remains of a person, quite another thing to have him come and shake your hand and know that he's going up on that mountain and never come back. That's it. And you say goodbye to him living. And that's what they did to Aaron. And then his son was taken up, and of course with the prophet, and, and all of his robes of the priesthood were transferred onto the son. And then the trauma of catabolical processes began to take place, and and he probably was not very long, actually, in the process, but he was buried up there on top of that mountain. And the people went into mourning for 30 days. Now the Lord said that it's, I, I'm ready to have you uh, go, uh, go into the promised land now, Moses. So the, most of the people now are in, um, they've passed away. We just have a few remnants, and we'll lose them here shortly. Didn't mention he's going to lose Moses, too. You're going also. But anyway, he said uh, nothing left now but the um, new generation... And the new generation doesn't know it, but they're about to be given a brand new offering of becoming a city of Enoch, just like that dying generation was given, and they're going to muff it just like their parents did. But anyway, the new generation has arisen. And um, the Lord made an interesting comment. He said, now, as you go to the promised land, I don't want you to go up through Hebron and get the Anak scaring the wits out of you again. I want you to go around here and come in across Jordan. However, I have my people here that you are not to destroy. When I get you over in among these heathen nations that are sacrificing their children and that are perverting them and have been doing it for generations, these I will want you to absolutely wipe out as a culture and send back to the spirit world. But he said, um, these are just apostates, Semitics. These who are here, the people of Edom, they're right in here. And over here I have the Moabites. Now there's a river that flows right down here, the Arnon River. You don't need to remember it, but it does flow into the Dead Sea. And these are all descendants of whom? The Moabites. Lot. Who? who? Lot. Lot. And up above that river were the Ammonites. And who are they descendants of? Lot. Okay. And Lot is the nephew of Abraham. So we've got the same uh, choice royal lineage down here. But all three of these, you see we have the Edomites right in there in what they call the Arab Valley. The era, this, this gulch in the Earth's surface goes right on up into Turkey. And this is, at this part of it is called the Arabah. 
and the people from there are called Arabs, and they're all over the Arabian Peninsula. But they take their name from this area, which formerly was called Edom. And in all the scriptures and prophecy, when they talk about Edom, they're talking about Arabs. And uh, they are descendants of Abraham and a choice people in their own right, even though they've always had a little conflict with their cousins of Judah. So the Lord says, now I don't want you to wipe them out, and I don't want you to wipe them out, nor them out. So Moses made his approach to the Edomites, and of course they welcomed him, didn't they? No. They didn't? No. What happened? Thou shalt not pass. Thou shalt not pass. In fact, he came right down to the border, and Moses said, look, we pay for everything. We, we go through in one day, right down the king's highway. We don't even let our flocks get off into the fields, and if they do accidentally, we pay. King of the Arabs said, you just crossed that line. See what happens. So Moses, uh, wisdom being the better, or prudence being the better part of valor, uh, he came down here. Now one thing that happened here that I should mention, and I did it earlier, but I want to be sure that you didn't miss it. Here at the end of 40 years in the wilderness, a miracle is performed that happened about the second month out. Uh, it's repeated. And they were at uh, this stopping off place here in the desert. It's about right here. And um, uh, Beersheba is right up here to kind of keep in mind where it is. Hebron, about right there, and the tops of the mountains. This is on the desert, so is this. And um, they ran out of water. And it was very unusual because this, this is an oasis, and usually it has enough water from a multitude of springs, not just one, to be able to adequately take care of all their cattle and everything. The water went dry all of a sudden. They're in very desperate straits. They complained to Moses. Moses went to the Lord as he had 40 years earlier, and the Lord said, it's all right. Go to the cliff there, and I'll, uh, we'll open it up and get some water for you. And, and, of course, when Moses and Aaron went to do it, they made the mistake of, of uh, exhibiting a certain amount of disdain toward the people as they said, do we always have to do these things for you? And they hit it. Out came the water. But by when they got back, the Lord said, Why did you take honor unto yourselves? Well, they didn't really mean to, I don't think. It was just one of those things. They had good offices with the Lord, and they had used them, and the Lord had complied, but uh, they had kind of taken a boastful position rather than a humble one. And so the Lord used that as an excuse to say to Moses that he would not be allowed to go into the promised land. And that was a real heartbreak after 40 years not to be able to lead them in. So you'll all remember that one, won't you? Okay, they came down here then. They came up to the Moabites welcomed them. Now, they're going to welcome King David when he comes, whose mother was a Moabite, uh, but, uh, or whose great, I should say, great-grandmother was a Moabite. But they don't welcome Israel. And so they went around, and they made their way around here, and then came down the river Aaron to go in among the Ammonites. Uh, were the, did the Ammonites welcome them? They couldn't welcome them. They were conquered by whom? The Amorites, who were the one of the heathen tribes that God wanted wiped right off the face of the earth. Um, they, were a, they were a degenerate type of people that perpetuated their culture of uh, human sacrifice and human degeneracy and debauchery. Uh, the Lord said even if one of their children grew up, they seemed to take pride in the, in the debauchery of the ancients. This happened in the Book of Mormon, too. Um, you remember when um, 
one of the prophets was told not to write down the secret combinations lest it perpetuate itself, made Lucifer reveal it all over again is what it turned out to be. But anyway, uh, just it seems like if you don't wipe out the whole culture, the Lord said, if you don't transfer all of them over to my side, uh, over to the spirit world, it will rise again. And I have to send my choice, wonderful spirits down through families like that. I just won't endure it any longer. And so he said to Abraham, you see, 470 years earlier, when he had first made his declaration, 420 plus 80, right? What, 40? Yeah, plus 40, I mean. 470 it would be. He said, now, they are not quite ripened to iniquity, but one day I will cleanse the earth of them. I am so angry at the way they do with my spirits when I send them down to them, the perversion and the degeneracy. So that's important to keep in mind. So they went in there, and King Sihon, Sihon, S-I-H-O-N, was in charge here. Was he conquered? Yes, he was successfully conquered. Moses marched right up with a host of Israel, got them right up in here. And we had a king uh, a little further up here. Um, what was his name? Uh, that was Og. And when you get a bed that's 13 feet long, that's real king-sized bed, that means you've got a pretty big man in it. Um, and because the best estimates that we can make were that they were running between 8 and 10 feet who were called enacts. They really were gigantic human beings, and we think it was a, prob a glandular problem that ran, uh, that occasionally kept cropping out and would be inherited and be perpetuated among them. Now, once they had been, once they had been conquered, you see now the Israelites have conquered all of this, conquered all their cities, and now they are wealthy, um, even though they've been on the desert all this time, they're a wealthy people. And um, it's, a, it's about this time that we have Balaam arise. And uh, you have the Midianites first um, uh, taking a long look at the Israelites and being heathens themselves. They said, this thing is just too big. We've got, to, uh, we got to get rid of these people. And so they, they got a true prophet. They said, we want a prophet of God, who's the, uh, of their God. We want a prophet of their God, and we'll bribe him to get his God to curse these people so they can be beaten in battle. Now, that was the reason for going clear up uh, to Haran, practically, on the Euphrates River and bringing back Balaam. Was Balaam a true prophet who fell or just a, a phony prophet? True prophet who fell, uh, Peter says in the New Testament. Um, how can you tell that he was a true prophet? What's the key that would indicate he was a true prophet? He had revelations, right. The Lord doesn't talk to fakers, no matter how much they try to bribe. So it's kind of interesting that three times, once he came down, I should go back just a little bit, he had this unusual experience of, um, of tempting the Lord. And finally, uh, the Lord said um, they'd offered him all kinds of things, and he'd kept, he was very bold, wife, you filled a house full of gold or silver, I wouldn't um, do this. Uh, but he'd go to the Lord, and he kind of tempted him just a little bit to, would this, could we kind of work this out somehow? No, the Lord said, no, we don't want to do that. Finally, the Lord got tired and did the same thing to Balaam that he did to Joseph Smith. What did he say? It's up to you. Let's see what happens. Now, that was a great lesson for Joseph Smith to learn, because that's how he lost the first 116 fool's cap pages, was taking it on himself 
after the Lord said, well, if you want to take that risk, you can. And he did. He never did it again. But he was young. He'd only been uh, in the priesthood calling, his new calling, a very short time. And the Lord really taught him uh, afterwards how, how he had fallen for the snare that people put on all of us. They pressure us to do things we know we shouldn't do, and they make the pressure almost unbearable. Relatives will do this, or people that you have a great affection for. Children will do it to parents. Parents will do it to children. They will pressure, pressure, pressure. Finally, the individual tries to squeeze out from under the pressure and does things that they really didn't want to do for, for uh, conscience reasons they didn't want to do. So anyway, he heads out and he starts down to do what these Midianite heathens want him to do, which is to offer sacrifices unto the God of Israel to see if he'll curse Moses. That's what they want him to do. So he's actually on this kind of a mission. And of course, the servant, the, the, the angel of God, uh, stood in the way, and this little uh, donkey saw the angel and uh, stopped. And he had to get off and beat the donkey. And we have a thing repeated until finally the poor little thing uh, uh, hurt his leg and jumped. Uh, these terraces aren't only about four or five feet wide sometimes. And it was going along a terrace and saw the angel and veered off and banged up his leg. Uh, by this time, Balaam has really crossed. And he's whanging on this little animal. And you have this amazing phenomenon indicated only on one other occasion in the scripture when animal life could articulate. When was the other time? The serpent, uh, it, it would be correct. However, in Revelations, we would have a third example. And uh, it's, what does it say? It says that the animal life in the resurrection has the capacity to express itself and was in and John saw them praising God, actually articulating praises to God. And in the 77th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the prophet said that actually represented animal life in its, in its exalted glory where they have the capacity of articulation. They are lower level of intelligence, but they are intelligent. When I was taking psychology, you see, back a half a generation ago, you'd have gotten an E or F for saying that animals had anything but instinct. That if you said they had intelligence, which means free, free will, capacity to think, reason, etc., you'd have been gotten a zero. Today, it'd be just the opposite. I tried to convince my professor back then that he was taking a, that he wasn't thinking. He just wasn't thinking. I said, have you ever had a pet? Ever had a horse? And there, so that's one of the dumbest of the animals. They're beautiful, but they are dumb. And um, um, dogs are completely different. We got a little French poodle, toy poodle, and he thinks he's people. He greets everybody and, and uh, gets acquainted with them, goes up and sits on their laps while they're visiting and has to be at the table and observe everything, watch the conversation, sits there and watches television. He's people. And we've had to treat him accordingly. We were going to treat him like a dog, but no, that's not good enough. I think he wants to go to the celestial kingdom if we make it. I think that's what he has in mind. In any event, there are different levels of intelligence in animals, but believe me, there's intelligence there. So this, this animal was able to talk to Balaam, and we had the big conversation, and the animal just simply said, uh, why are you beating me? Um, see what's up there? <laughs> we'll just see what's, what's there. <laughs> it's a real interesting conversation. 
But the very fact that the animal could articulate, we have taught some animals to talk without knowing what they're saying. They do it by rote. But we've never visualized anything with a tongue like that of a donkey being able to actually make sounds come out right. Anyway, in any event, this, this is recorded as a reality, a historical reality. Now, ancient Jewish tradition says that all of the animals were capable of articulating prior to the fall. And whether or not this is true, we don't know. But at least a servant was able to talk, and Eve didn't seem to think it was very anything unusual for it to be able to communicate. Um, anyway, Balaam went through the, all the three exercises requested of him by the, um, the heathens, and each time he reported back, I'm sorry, God has nothing but blessings for these people. And we thought to ourselves, well, good for Balaam. And then he went home, and that, that mammon got to him, as Peter says, and he went back and he lived among the heathens, and it wasn't long before he figured out a way to get the Israelites. And what was it? Seduce their young men with your beautiful girls. Did it work? Did it ever. And God was so unhappy with them that it caused a plague, and you remember many thousands, what was it, 24,000 were killed, and, and the grandson of the high, high priest, uh, realizing what this was doing to all of Israel and the people that were dying, uh, seeing one of uh, the tribe uh, uh, drag one of these gals, uh, who was the daughter of one of the leaders of the, of the heathens, take her into his tent, he just went and put a javelin through both of them and said, now let, the, let this be the end of this kind of immorality. The Lord has always taken a very vigorous attitude toward immorality. This is the first time in our eternal existence we've ever had the privilege of procreation with him and the last time for the vast majority of the human race. And he's done everything he could to sanctify that wonderful relationship between the sexes and that power of procreation. He's done everything he could to make it beautiful and holy uh, and understandable from his standpoint. He's put a very heavy penalty on those who violate it. He teaches the doctrine very vigorously. He puts it next to the taking of life to interfere with the fountains of life uh, beyond the protection of the law and the covenants that ought to be made. So you can see how, how he strongly he felt about it on this occasion. Now, uh, it's about this time that um, we have Moses asking the Lord if he just couldn't please, just please go into the promised land. And the Lord says, let me tell you something, uh, my son. Um, I'm going to take you up to the mountain so you can see the promised land. You'll get to see the promised land. I'm going to let you see the, the, the whole of it, the, the, the whole horizon of it. You won't go there physically, but you're going to be able to see it. And you're going to see it from the Pisgah Range, from, now, from Mount Pisgah on the Nebo Range. And you will not be coming back down. It will be with you as it was with your brother Aaron. I mean, this is the end. Yes, my son. Your days are through. And uh, so he had those last 30 days. And that's the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is the last 30 days of Moses. As he says, now let me get this straight. This is the word of the Lord. Listen to the law that you must obey. Blessings on this side. Cursings on this side. 
listening to the word of God, which of all of the books of Moses did Christ quote the most often? Deuteronomy. It's a beautiful summary of all the law. Just remember, that's the last 30 days of Moses, the sermons of the last 30 days of Moses. So he laid it down pretty hard. Then he called in, his, called in Joshua. Isn't it interesting how he tried to prepare Joshua for his mission? He kept saying, now don't lose your courage, Joshua. Now stand right in there. You've got a tremendous job to do. Now don't let your courage fail you. And he says that on two different occasions. So you know that Joshua's task was a, a real rough one when he got over to try and cleanse this land of all these heathens. And he never did get the people to do it properly. That's why they got corrupted and went into a dark ages of 400 years. But at least he started out right and seems to have done as much as he could. The people kept letting him down. That was the only problem. So finally, um, Moses had done everything he could except bless the individual tribes, and he did bless them. Now, I should mention one thing. He really flew into a rage at one point because two of the tribes, right after they got up in this territory, they, they'd occupied it, two of the tribes said, uh, how about us uh, staying over here? We won't wait for our inheritance over there in the promised land. We'll take it over here. Now, these were the tribes that had cattle, especially a lot of cattle. They were the herdsmen. And why did Moses go into such a rage? What was he so excited about? Oh, he went down, he jumped down their throats like they just committed the unpardonable sin. What did he say they'd just done? Marty? Like whom? 40 years ago or 38 years ago, it was talk like this that got us into all this trouble. No, he said, I'm just not going to hear this kind of talk. Oh, they said, you misunderstood us. Oh, we'll go over and fight. No problem. We'll raise the troops. We just thought maybe when it's all over and they're kind of distributing the land, maybe we could have this land. Did that pacify Moses? Yeah, you see, even a prophet can misunderstand. And uh, so that pacified him. And uh, these men subsequently raised 40,000 troops in full military dress, and they were the first to cross over the River Jordan uh, after the priests uh, stepped down and divided the river. So this is kind of an interesting aspect of it. And they fought valiantly all the time that Joshua was over there. They were away from their families, and they fought valiantly to help cleanse the land. And then finally they were released and allowed to go home. Um, so that's kind of a story all by itself. Well, finally Moses had done everything that he could think that he ought to do, and so he goes up into the mountain with Joshua, of course. And, and Joshua never did know, apparently, what happened to him. Uh, at least the Bible story would so indicate but the Book of Mormon tells a different story. They had a, a scripture separate from the Jewish scripture, which was kept by the house of Joseph. Now, Joshua belonged to the house of Joseph. Any of you remember in the Book of Mormon uh, what it says? Um, you have Mormon now recording it. And when Alma was translated, what did he say about Alma? With whom did he compare Alma? Yeah, he says it may, be, it may have been that the same thing happened to Alma that happened to Moses, in that the, he was taken unto the Lord without tasting death. Isn't that interesting? So they did know what happened to Moses. Somebody did. But our present Bible says that he was buried by God over in the next valley. In any event, a cloud enshrouded him and he was taken. Um, what was the purpose of translating Moses and later Elijah? Moses, you see, is being translated about 1400 B.C. Elijah will be translated about uh, 900 B.C. 
What was the purpose of translating these two men, Mike? Which had to be restored earlier. Yeah, earlier. Peter, James, and John. This is when, when they were transferred. And for some reason or other, this must be done in the flesh. We don't know why. We just know that it, this is the order of heaven. And so they had to be in a translated state in order to make the conferral on Peter, James, and John, uh, which was the keys of the previous dispensation. The same thing happened to Joseph Smith uh, and his immediate companion in the Kirtland Temple, 1836, as recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 110. Now, once again, Moses came and conferred the keys. Now, notice what keys they were. Do you remember what they were? The gathering of Israel. The gathering of Israel. And who restored the dispensation of uh, Abraham? Elias. And who was Elias? It was Noah. Noah appeared. A lot of our folks missed that. It was Noah who appeared and conferred that whole dispensation after the flood. In fact, that's what the word Elias means, restorer, one who restores. And that whole dispensation down to Abraham, from Noah to Abraham, that's ten generations, was all conferred on the modern prophet through the hands of Elias. Now, Elias is identified in the Doctrine and Covenants as, um, as um, being the same one uh, who appeared to Zacharias, whom Joseph Smith said was Noah. Isn't that about the way it goes? Anyway, we have him properly identified. He's Gabriel and, and uh, Elias. All right, now these priesthood keys had to be restored. Now, what happened to Moses? When, was, uh, when he appeared to Joseph Smith at the Kirtland Temple, was he still a translated being? When was he resurrected? At the time of Christ, the Scripture says. He came forth at the time when Christ said, You know, the saints will rise from the dead and minister to you. And it says, many did rise from their graves, not Moses. He didn't have to rise from any grave. He was changed in the twinkling of an eye, as was Elijah, undoubtedly. And they, they went through that transition where the spirit is taken out just for the twinkling of an eye. The body is refined and exalted, and then they're restored together. So apparently both of them were resurrected. Both Elijah and Moses were resurrected at that time. All right, that, yes. Because now he's resurrected, so he can confer them. He's in the flesh, you see. And Peter, James, and John, what's their situation? Peter and James were resurrected. What was John? And John translated, you see. So we had one translated being who ministered the keys of, of the previous dispensation. That's kind of interesting. And that's the Lord's pattern. He's never told us why it has to be that way, but it is. And we're just kind of gaining an insight into what he does. Now... After Moses was gone, Joshua came down, brought the people to this point right here, and he encouraged them in every way that he could, and he said, now we're going to cross. We're going to cross. And those people, by the way, had already made a covenant. This is a new generation. All these people were under 20, except Caleb and Joshua, at the time they came out of Egypt. And they were offered the privilege of having a nation likened to the city of Enoch. And they'd all agreed that that's what they would do. Unfortunately, as their fathers worshiped the golden calf, these people are going to fall into the fertility worship and the worship of golden calves and of phallic symbols and everything else once they get over, so they're going to lose it too. But in any event, they get ready to cross. It's kind of thrilling to stand uh, about there. You can look up, I, when we take tours over, I say to the folks, now look up and down the river right here. 
because we know that it was about here. Jericho's right over across the river right there. So we know that it was right in here that this great historical scene occurred. And what Joshua had uh, done was to take the Ark of the Covenant, put it on the shoulders of the priests, and they walked down toward this river, which is at flood tide, which means it is, it's not a very big river ordinarily, but it spread way out across its banks, which in, that, in those days we estimate would have made it about two blocks wide probably. And they walked down to where this swampy ebb tide water was and just stepped into it. And the scripture says it was just as though there were a plexiglass dam thrown up against that water. The waters piled up, backed up, the remainder of the water ran into the Dead Sea, and the river bottom was dry for about, it's about five miles down to the Dead Sea. And those three million people crossed over on dry land, on dry ground to the other side. And Joshua said, let's take stones out of the bottom of the river and we'll build a monument up on the shore afterwards to memorialize the fact that we were on the bottom of this river and crossed it on dry land, dry ground when God brought us into the promised land. And so they went um, uh, to the, there's a plain right between the river and Jericho itself, which is on, in the kind of the foothills. There's Gilgal, the uh, plain, and that's where they camped. And you got the people over there in Jericho watching, watching. What are they going to do? They didn't do anything. They just camped and stayed there for a while. And they began negotiating around. And all of a sudden, something stopped that they'd had for 40 years. What was it? The manna stopped. They're back now where they can buy food. The manna stopped. And it, it had been going for 40 years exactly, and now it suddenly stopped. Prior to coming across the river, uh, Joshua had sent over a couple of spies, and they had snuck into the city of Jericho to look it over, but uh, they were easily detected. And uh, they had gone uh, up to an innkeeper to ask her if, uh, uh, about things generally, etc. And when, they, when it became apparent that they were probably going to get killed, she hid them in some flax that was drying on the roof. And she said, I'll do this for you, providing you'll do what? That you'll protect my family when, this, when you take the, the city. Because you're going to take it because all of us have heard about what? how God divided the Red, Red Sea for you, and how you've had miracles in the wilderness. Now God has told you that you are to take this land. Now you're going to hear heathens say that over and over again. So when they resisted Israel, it was because um, they were doing it deliberately and defying God. Now the Lord had said to Joshua, when you go in and take these heathen peoples, I don't want you to just automatically kill them off. Because some of them may be willing to come under the higher law, but I'm not going to have any more babies killed the way they've been doing, burning them to this terrible god Moloch, which was a big iron furnace made like a man, and they'd build the, um, the furnace uh, inside here. The arms and everything were hollow, and these iron gods, Moloch, would hold his hands like this, and they'd get that image red hot, and then they'd put little babies in these arms, just roast them alive. So God said, I'm not going to have any more of that. But when you first come to them, what's the first thing he was to declare? Peace. Ask them if they'll come under the higher law and abandon these terrible practices. If they do, don't kill them. Now, he said, in the case of these five nations that I'm going to name, if they don't respond to that message of peace, then that's it. However, if it's the other nations, you're just to overcome and destroy the army, not the children nor the women. So those, it was kind of... The, when you get the Bible in context, he's not killing men, women, and children. 
unless there just isn't any alternative to keep these terrible practices from being exterminated. And gradually we get to the Lord's point of view. Well, we just have this final thought. Uh, Jericho is about right here. Uh, they call the place between here and here Gilgal, which is just a stretch between the river and the city of about five miles. You just look up there to the foothills and there's Jericho. And you remember that they were first circumcised, got about one minute to destroy Jericho. Uh, they, they first went under covenant. They were all circumcised. They'd done no circumcising out in the desert. So they all had to be circumcised. It took about six weeks till everybody was uh, well again and, and getting circulating around. And uh, then they marched around the city uh, on seven different days. And finally, the last day, they went around it completely. And the walls came tumbling down. And when we go on tour, we go there and look at the, at the foundations of the walls. They were magnificent walls. And it's all tumbled down to a ground level. And then you can see the, the basement, that is the lower levels of the walls, they're all intact. But on top of that, just rubble. And it was never rebuilt again in that spot. See you Thursday now. And if I can have those papers back, please. <laughs>